Amen. Glad y'all already been warmed up. And Steve is giving you permission. Amen, everybody. Amen. On this King Sunday, Christ Church, I'm, I'm thinking how my children, whenever they see a homeless person huddled in a corner in New York, they want to give money. On the train, someone is singing. They want to give money. My daughter came over yesterday after we'd been down. She said, Mommy, can we give that lady $5? Mommy, can we give that gentleman $5? And I said, Sweetheart, you need to sit with your dad. He's already given $5. <laughs> Amen. But more than just passing out change, more than just giving what we have in terms of spare or what some would call loose change. I want to think about this passage today in this gospel reading. This morning, I would imagine, like my children, that we are all familiar with the term all in. Am I right? All in. It's the vernacular, of course, for the expression all-inclusive or to go all in. This colloquial speech helps distinguish between those who are fully committed to something and those who are not so. In every speech, it allows us the ability to describe a person who might be the exemplar of a certain act uh, or, or one who functions without restriction or compromise. So today, this, this particular uh, phrase, this reference from the you know, the colloquial speech helps me place emphasis on the legacy and life of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. As we are experiencing the longest shutdown of the federal government in our nation's history, I am convinced that there has to be more to this love thing that Dr. King espoused years before my birth. Like you, I am left to contemplate how his messages profound, eloquent, and piercing as they may be, are applicable to life today. Yes, this 20th century prophet leaves us wondering how best to employ the essence of his statements, his letters and speeches in ways that are genuinely helping us combat the social ills of racism, sexism, heterosexism, xenophobia, and all forms of inequality today. So yes, I, I cannot recount the many things Dr. King said that would be useful to us today, beloved. I, I wish I could, but you know, he said a lot that we'd be here all day. And I don't think you all would want that, so I'm going to hasten on to say right now, in this very moment, the world is watching and seeing just how little love we have for humanity. Our fellow sisters and brothers on life's journey, struggling to make it. We, we can't even keep our own government running and working to serve our interests without biting our noses off to spite our faces. It's a disgrace. And a pitiful commentary on carrying forth the dream of Dr. King. So no, I couldn't preach from Genesis, although I wanted to be in, but the dreamer today, I think, would be saddened by what we are experiencing. I had to let that one rest. For as much as I love his I Have a Dream speech, I just had to let it have Sabbath today. 
For too many, the words resound in an echo chamber like hollow words. Year after year, around this time, we hear excerpts, even on the radio, throughout TV, and they are simply hollow words. Why are they hollow? They're hollow when we're not living into the spirit and the intention of the dream. Hollow words for some of us are easily rolling off our tongues, but when you're challenged to live out the meaning of the dream from that great march on Washington, we find it's a different scenario. Yes, it, it's been so sanitized until very few people have the heart to keep intact the intention of the march for racial equality, as well as all forms of human oppression and degradation. As we were reminded on yesterday, women are still marching because we too have experienced second-class citizenry. As a black woman standing here today, church, I, I know the realities of multiple forms of oppression. Yes, and it caused me to pick up a book that I had to read at one point in seminary. In his book, Martin and Malcolm, America, A Dream or a Nightmare, my late professor of systematic theology and the progenitor of black liberation theology, James Hal Cohn, writes, two weeks after King's great speech, white racists in Birmingham sent King and other Negroes an unmistakable message that they wanted no part of his dream. They bombed the 16th Street Baptist Church, killing not one but four little girls. It was just a precursor of the evil that would visit these United States of America before the children whose parents cannot be found were separated at the border. No matter how you rationalize it, children are still being taken from their parents. That was a clear sign of hate and its cancerous results for King. Even in the face of such evil, Dr. King continued in his teachings on nonviolence. Amazingly, Dr. King was, yes, all in. He was all in. And as I reflect on this passage from the gospel, I'm reminded of Dr. King's own words concerning this very lesson. In a sermon that he preached, he said, and I'm so happy he didn't say words of King, like your enemies because it's kind of difficult to like some people. Dr. King went on to say, like is sentimental, like is an affectionate sort of thing, and you can't like anybody who's bombing your home and threatening your children. Dr. King said, it's difficult to like them, but Jesus says, love them. Love is greater than like. King says, agape love is understanding, redemptive. Creative goodwill for all men, all humanity. And so, King says, Jesus was expressing something very creative when he said, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. Hmm. Tell me you're living that today. While the Bible scholars will know the various forms of love that are referenced throughout the Bible, even our text this morning, we are at a disadvantage. Yes, because the English language doesn't, it doesn't allow for the diversity of meanings we find in Scripture for love. The one word we have to describe how much we love pizza, how much we love our dog Roscoe, 
or even how much we love going to the beach on a hot summer's day, that same word has to suffice for love of our enemies and our neighbors. It's quite insufficient. This Jesus Luke writes about is telling his followers to love their enemies. Pray for those who mistreat you. Bless those who curse you. Don't even hesitate to give them the shirt off your back. It seems that somehow Jesus actually believed that people choosing to follow his teachings would serve others rather than themselves. Hmm. Yeah, we, he truly believed people would heed his directive and find joy in serving him while never completely turning their backs on an enemy or someone too far left of you that cannot see eye to eye with your viewpoint. Seems hard to imagine, doesn't it? Yes, this is the ethic, ethic that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to embody. Much to the chagrin and disbelief of others, even devout churchgoers, Jesus wanted his followers to be all in on this principle of love. Martin Luther King Jr. was a rare example of one who was all in on living out this gospel message. All in. Because if you heard the gospel read, you remembered that that's where the passage says to us that, that which we've known as the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You see, whether it's elected officials or pastors and preachers, we're all expected to love. Whether school teachers or commercial realtors, we're all expected to love. Yes, whether you're a student or a physician, it's the same expectation to love. Not simply love in a way that causes no tension. That means nothing. The text tells us that. Jesus meant for us to love in a way that would cause us to face injustice with justice and hatred with love because, yes, we are all in. I mean, all in for Jesus, all in on the gospel. How have you had to show that you are all in? My husband tells the story about his first parish. First of all, he was sent he likes to tell the story. From South Carolina, he didn't get a choice of what seminary he attended. And his bishop sent him to Neshota House, a seminary that's known for grooming Episcopal priests. And the priestly formation, par excellence. But he went and he declares to this day he was the only African-American in the seminary and certainly in the whole town. He said he couldn't even go to a Walmart and find someone that he recognized of his own culture. But when he left the seminary, he was called to a church in Bennisville, South Carolina. I don't know if we have any people who know where Bennisville, South Carolina is today. One, praise the Lord. <laughs> and I say that because Bennisville is close to me because it's 18 miles where I grew up. My little rural town in upstate South Carolina in that great Dixie land is close to to uh, Bennisville, and in fact, my brother was a police officer there on the police force there, Bennisville's finest, <laughs> lives there with his family. But this little town, although my husband grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, he'd never heard of Bennisville, and he just knew for certain 
he'd go back to Charleston or some other budding metropolis in South Carolina. But his bishop sent him, well, the church called him, but you know, that works, it's mutual, right? The bishop sent and the church called. And as an Episcopal priest, right out of seminary, going to his first church, he goes to this little town on the map in the state that he grew up in that he never heard of before. The town at that time, you know, the racial makeup was about 52% African-American, 52, 53% black, 49% white. And the people in interviewing him, when they decided, yes, they're going to receive him as their new priest and pastor, he's the new rector for St. Paul's Episcopal Church, they say, well, how are we going to make this work? And he says, well, what do you mean? Well, what are we going to say to everyone? What are we going to say to everyone? They say, how can you have a black priest and take communion from him? Was the question they were anticipating they would get from their friends and acquaintances in the area. It's a very real question when you think of the, the small town mentality where at that time the median income was about $24,000, except for the fact that Bennisville is in Marlboro County. Marlboro County at one point in the 20th century was, 19th to 20th century, was the richest county or one of the richest counties in the United States because of the cotton farming. And he had some legacy members there, yes, that would float his budget, who were, yes, millionaires. While the have-nots had nothing, they sat there and, you know, were members of his congregation, and they wanted to know, how are we going to make this work? When people ask us, how can you... How can you have a black priest and take communion from him? And he said, you answer to them, he's our priest, and we love him. And then conversely, they asked the question, how can you have, when he's asked, a, a, a white church as a black priest in Marlboro County, one of the richest in America? And he said, well, I'll have to tell them they're my people, and I love them. Yes, even in this land where cotton was king, you know, the cotton farmers here had to reckon with the fact that their new pastor and priest was a descendant of slaves called to be their new pastor. Funny enough, when it was time for him to go, he moved on to the southwest before he went to Albuquerque, one of those church leaders said to him, Father Terrence, you loved us back into community. I don't think I've heard anything more powerful. This frayed and fragmented, fragmented aging congregation in need of some warmth, in need of love, in need of young and vibrant energy felt that he loved them back into community. So much so that just when I had accepted this call to come to you, Christ Church, his former warden called him up and asked if he would consider coming back to be their priest. They needed a new rector, but they couldn't afford one full-time. They wanted to yoke up with the parish in my hometown who needed a new rector and couldn't afford one full-time, and that he would share his time between two parishes in Bennisville and my home of Chiraw, South Carolina, a different county, by the way. But he said then he knew he couldn't go back. One, I already signed up to come and join with you all, but isn't it something that even though he couldn't go back and serve as their rector, he's still being called back to officiate funerals of some of those same people he helped to love back into community. So I ask you, Christ Church, how are you all in on this message in the gospel text today? 
Are you living it out in the way that Christ intends? Dr. King, in his sermon, Loving Your Enemies, preached on March 7, 1961, at the Central Methodist Church in Detroit, Michigan. In his sermon, he said, And so when Jesus says, Love the enemy, he said, Love the enemy because there is something about love that can transform, that can change, that can arouse the conscience of the enemy. And only by doing this are you able to transform the jangling discords of society into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood and understanding. We must learn to say all those re- to all those reactionaries, he said, who have blocked the road to progress, do to us what you will, and we will still love you. We will match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as cooperation with good. Dr. King said, and so put us in jail and we will go to the, with humble smiles on our faces still loving you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children and we will still love you. Send your propaganda agents around the country and make it appear that we are not fit morally, culturally, and otherwise for integration, and we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hours and drag us out on some wayside road and beat us and leave us half dead, and we we will still love you. But be assured, Dr. King said, that we will wear you down We will wear you down by this in the meaning of the cross, and one day we will win our freedom. But not only will we win freedom for ourselves, we will also appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process. And so our victory will be a double victory. This seems to me the only answer and the only way to make our nation a new nation. In our world, a new world, love is the absolute power. Martin Luther King Jr. could do this deeply transformative and soul-searching work on behalf of humanity because he was all in for Christ Jesus. There would be no way for him to nurture a movement had he not believed in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ wholeheartedly, especially in the face of so much evil. So Christ Church, are you all in today with the message of the gospel like Martin King? Has your soul been anchored in the Lord? And thinking about that in that great hymn, The billows may roll, the breakers will dash. I will not stay because he holds me fast. Some darkless day that lies in the sky, know it's all right because Jesus is nigh. My soul's been anchored in the Lord. And I'm all in for Christ. Amen.